And good evening to all of our visitors and our friends and those looking for a church. My name's Tom. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you yet, we'd love to be able to do that afterwards. There's going to be a Q&A after tonight's sermon, of course, as well, which we do uh, periodically. But we're glad that we have you. Can you please open up to the book of Romans, chapter 6. We've just finished our, our series in Romans chapter 8, and tonight we duck back a, a couple of chapters to the, the last verse of Romans chapter 6. And tonight's aim and tonight's goal is to show us and ensure that everybody has a, 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 an action plan where everybody knows the path from here to heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the aim of tonight, the stated aim, the exact, I'm not trying to do anything underhanded. Uh, I'm not trying to, 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 to trick or to take you on a mystery tour or choose your own adventure tonight. Tonight's stated aim, friend, if you are outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, tonight's aim, the goal of this preacher, I will consider it a, a failure of my prayer and preparation if there are not souls that are one and can say that, that this sermon was something that God used to bring to life the spirit of life within you. This is our prayer here at Hope Reformed Baptist Church, that people who do not know Jesus savingly, some of you know him from a distance or some of you know him even nearby him because you're surrounded by Christians and call yourself a Christian, but you're not yet converted. Tonight's aim and prayer is that you would behold the Lord Jesus Christ in his gospel and get saved and escape hell and receive the Lord Jesus Christ to your glory. Tonight we're going to be in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Allow me to read this blessed and powerful verse to you. This is the word of God. Imagine there being this kind of wonderful word and promise in the scriptures that God himself wrote. This is a wonder that we are too frequently used to. Amazing grace stops being amazing. But here it is, wonder of wonders, the promise of God. For the wages of sin is death, but... The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. May God bless this in our midst this evening. Amen and amen. What a wonderful and glorious promise God has given us here tonight. The first reality, the first thing you need to know to get to heaven, and this is our, this is our question or our thought process tonight. What you need to know, friend, to get to heaven. Your first thing that you need to know is that the end of your life or the way that your life is heading, if you are not yet a born-again, spirit-filled, uh, filled with the love of God from within Christian, if you are not a Christian in Christ Jesus, then your life is leading towards hell, and the, towards death, and the whole of your life smells like it. That is, that, that uh, Paul has told us here in Romans uh, 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death. But look at verse 20. You have a Bible in front of you? Look at verse 20. He said, when you were slaves of sin, he's speaking to Christians, he's talking to a church, reminding them what their life was before they came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ after hearing the gospel. But some of you are not in Jesus Christ. There is no before you came to Jesus. There is no back in your old style of life because you're still currently in that life. Maybe you belong to a Christian family and you're growing up, but you're maybe you're teen years or so and you haven't actually thought seriously and may tonight be a night when you think seriously, hang on, my dad's a Christian, my mum prays for me, my older siblings have been baptised and named the Lord Jesus Christ as their saviour, am I going to heaven or hell? Have I truly embraced Jesus Christ 
for myself as my own savior. Some of you are friends of Christians. Maybe you're just a, a, a run-of-the-mill, uh, a regular, if there's any such thing as a regular Australian. There's no normal Australians, but maybe you're, you're a run-of-the-mill, regular Australian, and you've just not done a lot of thinking about eternal life and what happens after you've died because the devil is a wily beast and he's smart and he's fairly successful and he's got you to this point in your life without spending a great deal of time thinking about it. He's kept you distracted. He's kept you thinking about other things. He's kept you concerned about other matters, but you have not genuinely thought, where am I going after I die? May you consider that tonight. And Paul is talking to Christians and saying, before you came to Jesus, you were slaves of sin and you were free in regard to righteousness. What he means is this. This is an imagery that he uses, that the Bible uses about somebody who's not a Christian. And we love autonomy and independence and individuality and freedom in the West. But the reality is this, that if you are not bending the knee to Jesus as Lord, if you are not following his commandments, if you are not filled by his spirit, if you've not been forgiven of your sins, then you are a slave. You're a slave to the devil. You are the, the chains that hold you down are your own sin and the things that you feel identify you or, or that you get to define yourself by, your inner desires, your wants, your dreams. Those are actually the shackles that bind you to the punishment bench. You are a slave to sin. That's what Paul says. And what he means by that is that, that you don't ultimately have all this nonsense that goes flying about in philosophy and some people try to act religious with this language of free will. That if by free will you mean I determine my own outcomes, I choose my own lifestyle, I do what I think best and I only ever do what I choose for myself, that all is a well-veiled lie. There is no such thing as a liberated, free, righteous will. You know what you have? An enslaved will. You have a dead will so that everything you do, you're doing because sin causes you to do it. You're chasing after the desires and the lusts of your flesh, whether it be sexual or possessions or popularity or whatever it may be. Every one of us outside of Jesus and before Jesus are slaves to sin. Here's what else he says about it. He says, when you were slaves of sin... You were free in regard to righteousness. You woke up Sunday afternoon at the butt crack of sunset, hair in a mess from Saturday night, and here you are just enjoying yourself, and you roll over and think, I bet my sucker Christian friends are all lining up for church again right now. I bet they have to go in, and, and somebody's going to ask for their money, and somebody's going to ask them to dress nice, and they're going to sit there and listen to somebody talking, and, and then they'll go home. They won't even go to Sunday sessions. They won't go and get plastered again Sunday night. They'll, they'll go, and they'll act all righteous and do their boring lifestyle. They'll, they'll go Monday. They, they won't watch pornography. They won't flirt with the gals in the office. They won't, won't get the attention of the guys like I do. They won't do whatever they please because they're just boring, loser Christians. That's, that's how many people think of Christians. If you're a Christian, it's how they think of you. You're welcome. And maybe that's how you, 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 you thought of Christians beforehand. I've, I've known Christians even right here in this church who will say, I have no clue what happened to me. I made no plans to become a Christian. I thought I was enjoying my life just fine. And, and somehow, by God's grace, by his own power, here I am. I spent no life goals, in my, I, I, I made no life goals to become one of these boring, horrible, enslaved to God's law Christians, and here they are. And this is how people think about Christianity or living for Jesus. They think, they look at it and they go, I'm free of that. All that righteousness, I'm free of righteousness because I just serve me and my friend sin. Well, Paul says, 
outside of Jesus, you're a slave to sin. You thought of yourself as being free in regard to righteousness. But verse 21 says this. But what fruit were you getting at that time? What a horribly honest question Paul asks. He looks in the unbeliever's face. He looks in your face. He grabs you by the hand, non-Christian. Teenage kid, uh, uh, a young adult trying to, trying to live your own life and show that you can, you, you can lead your own soul whichever way you want or, or grown adults and you've, you've lived much of your life denying the call and the conscience of God in your heart. And here you are and Paul says, what fruit has your lifestyle and your desires got for you? It's a terribly honest question. Because if you were to be honest and you were to list out your search history or your, your, your relational escapades or your failures or your immoralities, the, the real person that you are with the real history and the real lifestyle that you lead from heart to without, you would recognize exactly what he says next, which is that you have led and produced a shameful life. That, that if you're honest, if, if people were to, to, to project, put up on a big screen tonight a, 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 a secret camera that's been watching you all week, or, or your internet history and all of your group chats and all of your personal messages have all been printed out and handed into the bulletin tonight and everybody's going to have a read, every one of us would feel a deep and disgusting shame. And that's just in front of other sinful people. Imagine what God sees. This is what Paul says. He says, what sort of fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. He's saying the end of those things is death. He's not just meaning the, the consequence is death. He's meaning that the direction you're traveling is death. Now, if you were to be, I don't know if any of you gents have a girlfriend or a fiance, they're expensive. They like things like Aesop. Now, no plug here. I'm not being paid for this. Aesop is a ridiculously overpriced, very nice smelling, fair, perfume. Or They don't even like you pronouncing it perfume. They say it differently like nerds or French. I don't know how they say it. But sometimes when we go to the shops, I know when my wife is leading us down the corridor that's going to lead to that shop and we're going to get her a nice hand cream. She deserves it, a beautiful fragrance of some kind. We're going there and I know we're going there because of the way it smells already. The, the smell wafts down the corridor and, I can, and so I know at some point, now I'm pretty well trained, I'm, like a, I'm, I'm a good dog and, and I, I, I can smell it from about 100 meters off and I know where we're heading because of the smell. And so it is, maybe you've, you've been on a direction towards the dump and you can tell within a, a kilometer or so, I'm, I'm on the right track, it's somewhere near here because of the stench that fumigates. So it is with the, with the life that we live outside of Jesus Christ, the life that some of you are currently in now, your path smells like the destination. That's what Paul is saying. Your, your whole life pathway smells and, and looks and is overgrown with the kind of death that you're going to meet at the end. The result of your lifestyle, the destination, the direction you're heading in is death, destruction, corruption. And that's why your life smells like it. You're, you're moving there and so there's all sorts of symptoms. Before death overtakes you, there's all sorts of deathly symptoms that are already starting to, to bleed through you and, and, and smell on you so that there's corruption, there's, there's filth, there's disgust, there's guilt in your heart, there's vileness, there's hatred towards other people, there's, there's malice in your actions, there's, 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 there's jealousy towards others, there is, a, there is a despising of other people's good, there's, there's a hatred of God, there's, a, there's, there's these flowering of these deathly 
flowers all through the garden bed that is your life. It looks and smells like death. Now, maybe you can polish yourself up well and you put on your good button-up shirt and you're here at church or friends around you don't really know what's going on, but Paul does. Every Christian that knows the Bible knows your heart better than you know your heart. Maybe you've got a Christian friend and you've said to them before, you don't know me, you can't tell me what I think. Let's pop that bubble. We can. I don't know what you're thinking right now, unless God tells me. Okay, granted, but I know how you think. I know how you feel. I know what the inner workings of your life are, even better than you do, because God can see it, and he's telling me what cards you're playing with. You ever had a good mate at maybe a poker night or, or card night with friends? I have. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not ashamed of this at all. You always bring a mate to a card night so that they can sit on the other end of the table and tell you what your other mates have. It's a tremendous way to, to get... I'm punishing them for doing such a dishonest thing as card playing, all right? I'm, I'm doing the work of the Lord. And that's what the, that's what the Lord God does for us right now in the book of Romans all throughout the Bible is that God stands behind you and tells Christians this is what they love, sin or they think that it's because they read a Richard Dawkins book, you think that you've, you've outsmarted God and you actually understand that there's reasons and evidences not to be a Christian, I call your bluff, it is because you love sin it is because you, you have within you a bent towards that which is disgusting, sinful, and vile, as every one of us naturally do. And Paul says, your lifestyle is producing a filthy, deathly fruit. Your path is going to end up in death. I've, I've met people, I've not met people, I've counseled dozens of people who are on their way to becoming a Christian or... Actually, it seems that way, but maybe more accurately, people who are on their way to hell. I've known people who are, who are sitting down here at church, this front row after a sermon, or, or, or sitting around after youth group when I was a youth pastor, or, or on the streets evangelizing, and they'll say, they will be entirely and wholly fully convinced of what I'm saying being the truth of God. They'll say, man, something you're saying is just, it's getting in me, man. That's, that, that's deeper than anything I've heard before. I believe it. I, I believe in God. I believe I'm guilty. I believe there's a hell coming. I, I know that Jesus died. And, and of course, it sounds like he absolutely rose from the dead. And, and it seems logically, therefore, that the only way to be free of this damnation is, as you say, trust in Jesus and follow him. And I say, no, not follow him. Trust in Jesus. He'll save you. Then you follow him. The way to heaven is just trust in Jesus. And, and they'll say, that's, you know, I can't fault it. That, that resonates. It seems true. But how many dozens of times people have said something like that? It seems true. I'm convicted. I'm, I'm teary-eyed because of the guilt of my heart. But there is always a devilish but, a however, a, a, an although. And the although, the, the however, the but is always that they delight and they love the lifestyle they are living. They'll say, I, I know, that sounds amazing, but I, I just cannot imagine my life without this girlfriend. Or, or, or would Jesus demand that I break up with her and slop, stop sleeping with her before I come to him? And my answer as a good evangelist is always no. You don't have to clean up your life at all before you come to Jesus. Stay with her. I don't care what's happening. Nothing has to change. Just come to Jesus in faith. But yes. Obedience to Jesus will look like severing those ties and those habits of sin in your life. He'll give you his spirit to do it. He will help you. You'll be able, but I feel like maybe the ability to do it is not your problem. You go, no, no, I don't want to give that up. 
And here's the folly of sin, is that it convinces you that what it can offer you is worth you going to hell for. That might sound like some imaginary fairy tale person out there. The person who believes that God is real, they are going to hell, but they want to keep on living their sinful life. And I'm telling you it's not, and I know that some of you are here right now that you know yourself going to hell. You know your own judgment. You know that if there's a God and he's fair, he's not letting you in. That's honest. You're aware that that would be pretty unfair. If, if, uh, if there's a heaven and he lets you in, he's blind. He has no clue what's, or he has very low standards. You're aware of that. And yet, you desire, you cannot leave your sinful behavior because you enjoy it so much. And what you need to know, what you need to know to go to heaven is that there is no joy, there is no lasting satisfaction in the sins that you are currently living in. You're, you're like the, the, uh, the, the person whose who's, uh, ship has gone down, jumped in a life raft, and is now floating in the ocean awaiting rescue, and you give in to that constant, that frequent, that horrible tragedy. The, 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 the confused man in his lifeboat thinks, why would I thirst to death? Why would I die of thirst when I'm surrounded by water? And so he starts to gulp the seawater. And the delirium sets in of somebody so dehydrated that, that they start to feel quenched, that the belly becomes full, their mouth is wet, they, they feel satisfied, and they just keep on drinking salt water that has precisely the opposite effect on them that they thought. It makes them more thirsty, more dehydrated, and it kills their organs from within, and they die of dehydration while belly's full of water. And that is like you in sin. That at some point you're convinced... You would acknowledge right now you're not the happiest you could be and you'd, 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 you'd hedge the bet that there's probably people more satisfied with their life right now. Probably. You'd be willing to say that. But the folly of the deception of sin is that like the gulping of seawater, it convinces you that just a couple of more, just a couple more gulps will satisfy you. I know you're not satisfied right now, but, but a few more sins, a, a few more of the sexual encounters, a few bit more, a little bit more money, a, a little bit, you know, a few more months of just extending out this sin and the, the dam will break. Trust me, the, the money will start coming in. The satisfaction will fill your soul and then you'll say, I'm so glad I didn't come to Jesus and I lived this sinful lifestyle and it's a lie. There is no joy in entertaining sin. There is no lasting satisfaction. What you are living in is, is on one level you're aware of it. On another level you are entirely ignorant of it. You think that with, with each passing year and each passing month of following sin, you're getting a little bit closer to its satisfaction that it promised. But sin is a con man. The reality is, this has been my experience as a pastor, and the wisdom of the Bible is that every year that goes past, you're in fact less fulfilled. More, you have more self-regret over the stupid and disgusting things that you've done, but you think, like the, like the gambler, you think, I may be $100,000 in debt, but if I pull out now, I waste it all. If I keep on risking more, I at least stand the chance of having a payout. And so the sinner thinks, uh, they, they feel in their soul a, a continuing uh, diminishing return on, on the value and the joy of sin. But the folly is to think, I'm sure if I just stay in this a little longer, there will be some kind of return. You've allowed yourself to think that there is some kind of return coming, but all that comes is the cycle of more shame as the effects of your sin kick in. 
I've walked with Christians over, over, over years and, and tried to, to uh, non-Christians rather, sorry, evangelize them over years and, and tried to win them. And, it, and it's so heartbreaking to think that years ago they were, they, they were not ta- interested in Jesus at all. They were sure that, like we say, sin will pay off. And as the years have gone by, five, ten years on, I look at them and they're all just the more encased with their sin. They're just all the more guilty in their heart. To be honest, they hate themselves. Most people do. Most people in our world despise who they see themselves to be. Most people lie and project some kind of self-confidence and project some kind of self-love, which they do also hold intention. They, they love themselves, but they hate who they see in the mirror. And, and as the effects of sin kick in, and then they do something sinful to, 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 to manage that and to respond to that, on and on, every year comes the regrettable, deep self-pity and regret and guilt that grows day by day by day because you refuse to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Augustine, a guy from one of the early centuries, he said this, Lord, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts remain restless until they find our rest in thee. That's what the non-Christian is. You, you, you are in the state of looking for an eternal uh, satisfaction. You're looking for something to finally fit the hole within you and give you peace and satisfaction and joy forever. But you can never find it. Precisely because the only thing that can give that peace is in the one thing you're running away from, which is God himself. He made you for himself, and he has so hardwired us, human beings, that until we come to him in repentance and faith, until we're unified back to him, there will be a continual, unsettling lack of peace within us. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why Paul says in verse 21, the end of those things is death. The way that you're living leads to death. It smells like death right now. Your life reeks of death. Do not walk this life without Jesus Christ. That's your life right now. There's a second thing you need to know. To get to heaven, you need to know that your life and lifestyle is leading in a deathly way and you'll end up hating yourself and your life. It's all a lie. This whole, you'll find joy in sin. But the second thing you need to know is that the end of your life, after you die, there will be eternal death awaiting you. Oh, Christian, this is, this is the substance of everything we sing that we are overjoyed with the reality that in God, in, in Christ Jesus and his death on the cross and resurrection, there is for us a sealed promise stamped by God himself that we do not have to undergo the punishment of our sins, that an eternal death and torment has been escaped and that we may be saved. We are saved. We know we are not heading towards that. That is the glory of our joy as Christians. But if you're not a Christian, Maybe this is the first time you've really thought about it. Maybe this is the thousandth time and you wish God would just stop chasing you. I pray he doesn't. This is the reality, that when you die, the wages of your sin is death. God is a righteous judge. God is everywhere in the Bible pictured as, as the judge of all the earth, as the God who is above all, who made all, who rules all, and his law is the one and only standard of what is right and wrong, and it is the one and only eternal standard of what is good enough to be in heaven with him and what is indecent and not good enough 
to be with him, therefore going to hell. So in other words, despite what every college professor has told you, you are not going to face God or, or your proverbial you know, childhood trauma mother or your, 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 your own standard of right and wrong or Gandhi. You're not going to face any of them and be asked on the last day, how do you think you did? You know, according to your own standards and rights and wrongs, how do you, how, how do you judge yourself? It's God's old-fashioned. And he has a law, and he intends to uphold it. He will measure you against it. And right now, he's already graciously published his law in the Bible so that we can know where do I stand, right or wrong, just or unjust, righteous or evil. And every one of us, by our idolatry, our blasphemy, our lying, by our stealing, our coveting, our filthiness, we are all, every single one of us, the Bible says, not one of us stands in any other condition than this, sinful through and through. Now, you don't even need to have committed a trillion sins to have an eternal hell awaiting you. You only need to commit one. Because, and this is what a lot of non-Christians think or, or at least use as try and, you know, to try and dodge the, the argument of, of the gospel. And they'll say, you know, the, isn't it unrighteous? So, so unfair that the little sin committed by a mere mortal will, will so enrage some, some divine being that it will deserve an infinite hell? What sort of judge would be righteous, thought righteous if they did that? For, for a little picadillo, for a taking of a, of a bun of bread will be having their head chopped off. Some eternal punishment for, for a measly little sin, but, but that's just both correct and very incorrect. Well, it's correct that God, God does punish things in, uh, uh, to, to the degree and, and in balance to the severity of the sin. But that's what deserves, what, what causes sin to deserve an eternal hell is not that you're an eternal person committing such a sin or that you have such an eternal power to commit such an affront against an eternal God. The reality, the, the reason that sin deserves an eternal hell is because it's committed against an eternal, infinitely, perfectly righteous God. He is what makes sin so horrible. His righteousness and his law. Now, now what judge would we ever think? We, we've got to be honest about this. How many non-Christians who are not yet saved, you, you want to think, and many Christians, you, you, are, you, you, you try this argument beforehand, this, this sort of pleading with God that, that surely if he loves you, if he's kind, he can just sweep your sins away. He can just say it's all good. He can let me in like a, like a loving grandfather. He can wink at my sin and give me a lolly. That, that'll be fine. But no one of us would allow, would, would tolerate the calling of a man righteous, upright, tall standing in the community. None of us would be satisfied with that reputation of a judge if he was known for day in and day out acquitting and sending back, back into the community all kind of sex, sexual assaultants, violent men, beating of their wives and children, thieves and, and abusers of the worst kind. Not a single one of us would stand to hear that man called righteous. That's an evil judge. So it is, how much more so with God? The righteous judge of all the earth will do right. And the horror of our sinful standing is this, that God is righteous and you are not. So that if God be righteous, every sinner will be thrown into hell to receive that eternal and unending terror and judgment and pain and horror that we deserve because of our sin. God being a king. What would you think of, of a king, of, of our king right now? If during his coronation, 
If during his, his crowning, a, a, a terrorist jumps the, 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 the red rope and runs past the king's guard and delivers a, a hearty slap to the face of King Charles III, what would you think if that king chuckled it off and allowed him to be escorted peacefully out? Oh, you might think he's a, he's a nice guy, but he's no fitting king. You would think of that man, that he has no esteem of his own weight, his own honor, and he cares nothing for the glory of his own kingdom. That is a terrible king. And yet this is what people want God to be. This is what people uh, don't realize that, that God is in fact such a good king that he will, he will retaliate in order to uphold his honor. That's what God will do. He will retaliate against our sinners. We are the, the subjects that have come against our king with rebellion and slap to the face and spitting on his royal gown and striking his, his royal crown. This is us. As sinners, we have dismayed and disgusted and we have uh, insulted and polluted a high king. Therefore, he must do what, what needs to be done to, re, to redeem and reestablish his honor. And there, but God has said in, in no uncertain terms, he will not let the guilty go unpunished. In, in chapter 2 of Romans, he says this, God will render to each one according to his work. According to his work, God will give it. Don't be in any doubt of it. God has warned you now so that you can flee it. God has warned you now so that you can escape it. So do not go where God warns you not to go. If you go living this life without faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be absolutely sure that the only place you are going is to the place of receiving everything you deserved for all of your sin. This is why he calls it wages. Most of us, those who have jobs, know what wages are. We understand wages. Now, we've all received the first, the first uh, 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 payment, you know, received to pay slip to the email and cringed as we see how much tax we have to pay. But, but we know what it is to work hard and receive and if at some point you start realizing that your pay slip is halving and then quartering and then it's down to one-fifth of what you know you're supposed to be getting, you realize this is no error. You call up your boss and he says, yeah, yeah, the thing is, look, I just figured it'd be better for you if you just got a fifth of what you deserved. I know you worked 40 hours. Well, last week you worked 65, but and, I mean, apprentices know this pain. They go, eh, I think you're only worth five or 10 bucks an hour. Can we just, I, I thought you'd be fine with that. Now, you'd hang up from him, you'd call the ACCC and start uh, uh, reporting somebody for, for uh, illegal employment. That's what you do. You know exactly what it is like to have worked a certain amount of hours and then at the end of it to be able to tabulate and know exactly what you deserve. You get what you work for. That, that's how it works in an, in an economy. Well, so it is that Paul employs this language of wages about our death in hell, about our eternal death and our punishment. You can think of every sin you've ever done. Every evil, crime, thought, speech, wish. Everything you've ever done that, that is against God's law is going to be tabulated and its precise value exacted from you in pain and suffering in hell. Now, imagine if tonight the horrible news was said that you're going to pay for even one of those sins. That would be a, that'd be a terror. If all of this is true and the, the wages for sin is death eternal, then you will have a horribly hot and painful hell. But that's not what he says. He says the wages of all sin. That is that just like you get paid for every hour that you work, 
So God will give you the, the right and righteous deserved payment for every one of your sins. Now, now think if it was just a little bit worse than that, if it was just every sin that you remember. If tonight I just gave us a, a group activity in groups of three, everybody just, just get a piece of paper and start writing down all of the sins that you can remember from your infancy upwards. I mean, we wouldn't have time, I know that. Where we would fail to think of all of that, and, and you would get maybe a couple of months into your life as you're thinking of the timeline before you realize this is a horrible place to be. I, I have an incountable, innumerable amount of sins, but it's not that. That's not what God says. He says that every sin, that is, every sin that He's aware of, which is infinitely more than you are actually aware of, all of the, the thoughts, the, the background motivations, the, the, the hidden desires, you have no clue just how sinful you really are, but God does. And he tells you that for every single one of those sins, there will be an exact payment, a wage given to you what is deserved in an eternal torment of hell. That is the bad news. You will be exacted from God completely, justly, all of the wages. And just, if you dare, imagine it. Imagine the death, the day that maybe upon your death, or maybe the day that Jesus comes back, which could be next week. Imagine that Jesus Christ stands before you. And in all the honesty that we've been trying to have with each other tonight about our real inner thinkings and our sinful desires, non-Christian, I, I won't ask the Christians to do this. The false Christians, definitely. But, but the Christians have completely escaped the horror of this day. I don't even need to get you to imagine it. But for the non-Christian, be honest with yourself and imagine yourself that day. Truly you recognize that Jesus really will appear to you in infinite dazzling glory. And as he lists your sins and, and reflects your own image back to you, the way that he sees you, your knee will fall. You will fall down to your knee and with tears streaming from your eyes, you will recognize in total honesty, you are God. I deserve whatever is coming to me. I have no defense. I have nothing to excuse me. I have no way of escaping. And you will even realize right then that the only righteous thing a righteous God should do and could do is send you to hell. And in a way, you will lean into that judgment and you will, with, with utter hopelessness and yet with utter certainty that you have no escape, you will even plunge yourself. You will bend in. You will lean into that judgment and you will know that in that moment is sealed your eternal, unending, disastrous fate. Jonathan Edwards spoke of it as if, as if you were dangling upside down over an, an open pit of, of molten metal. And you were dangling there and, and the only thing holding you up was a spare thread that was caught from your shirt as you fell. And there you were, hanging over that pit and, and with nothing to grab onto, nothing to actually lift yourself up with. You know yourself completely helpless and hopeless. You hear the words of God condemn you to your death. And I think we've all, maybe it's a Sunday afternoon nap. Maybe it's, it's trying to sleep late on a Sunday night for work the next day. And you just have one of those immediate jolts. You ever had that? Is it just me? That as you're just about to get to sleep and... Most wives know their husbands do this. 
just about to get to sleep after a long day and you have this immediate jolt and the bed frame just shakes because you've had a dream or, or in your lucidness you, you imagined or thought you were falling, like you slipped. Is that, is that just me? And we've all had the turning up to school without your pants dream. Everybody, that seems to be a weird universal dream of, of fear and shame. But, I, but we've also had this, that, that just as you're sleeping, you jolt. Because, because the sympathetic nervous system, the, the, the inner workings of, of the human body, hates to fall. And that is, that we all know, therefore, that, that gut-churning, slipping, falling, weightless feeling of falling into oblivion. And that will be the feeling of us. Now imagine yourself there. You deserve everything that comes to you, and you will know it. In a mind more logical than you're able to even imagine now, you will acknowledge, this is what I deserve. This is what should happen. And this is what... God is giving me. But the rest of this verse in in chapter 6 of the book of Romans, let's read verse 23 again. For the wages of sin is death. That is what we've been discussing. The payment, the deserved payment that God, if he's righteous, will give to you is death in this life, but ultimately eternal. But, but, a, a great turn occurs at this point. However, But just as the thread and the final fibers begin to snap and you can feel yourself about to fall, a great alarm goes off, a net is thrown beneath you. But the free gift of God is eternal life. Can you imagine the, the immense and infinite relief that would flood you, give you goosebumps, almost make you hurl as you fell a few millimeters and then were caught into a safety net over such a hot and blazing ultimate death? Can you imagine that relief? That is the relief Paul wants you to imagine. Now, if you're a non-Christian, that is still only a possibility for you, but it is a promise from God that it is available to you. If you're a Christian, you've been caught, you've been brought to safety, you've been crowned with the dazzling jewels of heaven, you're a child of God. But if you're a non-Christian, while you dangle over hell even this moment, the good news is that God delights to give eternal life. And that eternal life is a free gift. What an amazing thing that this would be in the Bible, a free gift of God. If wages are the discussion of what you deserve, because of your doing, a free gift is precisely the opposite. A free gift can never, be, can never be declined on the basis that it was not earned. You cannot, if, if somebody wishes to give you a free gift, there's no sense in the argument, I, I never earned this, I didn't buy this from you, they will, they'll slap your hand away and say, I know, it's, it's called a gift. You ungrateful something. <laughs> I say, it's called a gift. Just receive a gift. There's no point in arguing against the giving of a gift on the basis of what you deserve, and this is the good news. You can no longer think now. We're finished with the mindset of thinking what you deserve from God. That was the first part of the sermon, the first four-fifths of the sermon. This final part is the recognition that God doesn't care what you deserve when he's giving you the free gift of eternal life. He is giving you a free gift. Spurgeon tells this story. He was a preacher of another century, and, and he told the story of an old lady, and we'll give her name Dorothy. And she was running behind on rent, and she was a widow, and she was impoverished, and, and she heard a knock on her front door. And she did what most introvert millennials do. She goes and runs behind a couch and pretends she's not home. 
Why didn't you call ahead? I'm not in the mood for being hospitable. She, she's nervous because she knows that a landlord is coming to exact from her and extract from her the, the, the fees that she doesn't have. He's coming to demand what she needs to pay. And so she doesn't come and he hears him going around the side of the house and knocking on windows and, and trying the back door and she's hiding. Now the next day at church, the, the pastor comes up and grabs her and says, Dorothy, where were you yesterday? I know you were home. Well, what are you talking about, pastor? Because I'd done a collection amongst the young people at church and they desired to aid you and pay your rent for the next six months. I, I was looking for you and you wouldn't come to the door. I know you were home. And she says, oh, I thought you were the landlord. I, I didn't have what I thought you were demanding. And, and Spurgeon makes a direct application to the gospel. Says this is how most non-Christians hear the preaching of the gospel. Maybe you've been invited by a friend or again, you've been calling yourself a Christian, but you're here tonight. And every time I as your pastor, I as the preacher say something about giving your life to Jesus, you are hearing Jesus wants to take things from me that I know I don't have to give. I don't have a righteous life. I don't have, a, have money and, and I don't want to give things to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and the good news is you're hearing me all wrong. Jesus is knocking on the door saying, everything you owe, I'm here to pay. Everything you don't have, I'm here to provide. Everything you need, I am God's gift to you. God is giving a gift in Jesus Christ. This is a marvelous, unimaginable blessing that God wants to give you a wonderful gift. Where you deserve eternal death, separation from all of God's love and blessings, God has chosen out of the freedom of his own heart, based on nothing in you that he wants to give you, the blessings, the pleasures, the jewels, the crowns of heaven itself. Jesus, this is a, this is a marvelous word that you may not even believe is in the Bible. The, the next few words in Romans 6.23 is this. While the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life, where is this gift? Where is it to be found? Where is eternal life given to us? Is it, is it in the, 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 the nation state of, of Israel in Jerusalem in a hidden temple in a cave somewhere that, that you go like I did in a, in a Shinto a temple in Japan? You can go underneath the basement and you can touch the golden key and you have eternal life. Is it, is it on top of the Himalayas that somewhere you can go on a pilgrimage and climb and find the, the, the temple and you sit down, you say the right amount of alms and alms and then you'll receive eternal life? Where is it? Where has God put eternal life? It is in Jesus Christ the Lord. And Jesus Christ is everywhere his gospel is preached, being held out to you right in front of you. The way Paul says it in another chapter of Romans is that Jesus is right in your mouth. You don't need to get up and go prepare him. You don't need to go somewhere and find the gospel. Freedom, eternal life in Jesus Christ in the preaching of the gospel is placed on your very tongue. All you have to do is receive it into your body. You don't add something to it. You don't do something to it by mere faith, by simply acknowledging the truth. This is how you get to heaven. Know that your life is deathly and disgusting and you will find no joy in it outside of Jesus. Know, secondly, that where you are headed is an eternal hell for the punishments of your sins. Know, thirdly, that Jesus, that, that God rather, the Father, has in love given his Son to give you eternal life in grace. And, th and lastly, know that this grace, this eternal life is in Jesus Christ. There's a marvelous uh, 
verse that I mentioned before. Jesus himself said it. And I go back to this time and time again to just remember the sheer grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, right after John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one, his only beloved son, so that anybody who believes in him must not perish, but have eternal life. For, Jesus says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God did not send his son to come in, show you how terrible you are, tighten your locks, laugh at you in jail, slam shut the door, go back to heaven and have a party with the angels in your, in your absence. Jesus did not come into the world to laugh at you in your sin, to mock at you in the, in the stocks, to throw heaven's vegetables at you and then get back out of here. He did not come into the world in order to condemn it and worsen its death. Jesus came into the world in order to save the world. This vile world, this world of prostitutes and prostitute visitors, liars and perjurers, pornography users and pornography makers, people who steal and people who benefit off others stealing, people who covet other people's goods and gossip day in, day out, complainers and horrible sinners that we are, those who massacre babies, those who worship false gods, those who genocidally kill other people, this world, this very world, in all of its sin, there will never be found a person in it so sinful that Jesus' love and blood is not able to save you and there will never be a sinner in this world to whom Jesus does not say I was given not to condemn but to save you come to the Lord Jesus Christ Adoniram Judson was a missionary to Burma in the 1800s and thinking of John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his son there's this scene in his life and it's actually when he's leaving America to go to the mission field and any mother will know this, his mother escorts him with his family to the, to the dock, and he, uh, <laughs> mothers, imagine this, if you will, the child that you have loved so dearly, growing up to become a man, and now a married man, with his beautiful bride on his arm, and they are boarding a ship. And, and, and everything within this lovely young mother, Abigail was her name, Abigail Brown, now Abigail Judson. She had tossed and turned between, should I give him my blessing? Should I beg him to stay? Should I tell him God doesn't want him to go? Should I give him my full love and blessing? Lord, Lord, what do I do? And standing there on that dock as her son, her beloved son, walks up the plank towards the ship, knowing full well she would likely never see him again. This thought came to her mind. This verse shone in her mind's eye. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And she says in, in that moment, she wrote to him a letter later, saying, in that moment I thought, if God could so love to give his son, how could I be so selfish as to keep back my own from the nations that do not know Jesus? She wept. It was bitter, but it was bittersweet for her. Now imagine, if you will, if you were a Burmese person back on the, the streets in the 1800s, and here's this, this, this man preaching this news of salvation to you. And, and you wonder... Right? You wonder, as you see this Western man standing in front of you and talking, you wonder, I, I wonder what would be good. Should I listen and receive his message or should I reject it? Could you imagine writing or, or traveling and visiting Abigail, his mother? 
Can you imagine asking her, you know, I, I, I'm really wondering, here's this man in my nation all these miles away. Should I listen to what he says? Should, should, I, should, I, should I give heed to his calls and his rebukes and his exhortations? Everything within her would say, how, how, how can you ever think that I would give such a gift of the loss of my son, the life lived with my grandchildren? How can you think I would give all of that for anything other than that you would hear his message? Of course receive his message. Take everything he's willing to give you. Bleed him dry. That is why I gave him. And to do anything else is to, is to pain me as a mother, is to waste my sacrifice. And this is what God says to you. That as a non-Christian, you sit there and you stand there. You know you're going to hell and yet this free gift is held out and you still feel unworthy. And God is saying to you through the book of Romans, the only way, the only way to glorify him, the, the precise thing that he wants you to do is not go to what you deserve. He doesn't desire to punish you for your sin's earnings. He wants and desires that you make good on what Jesus died to procure, which is your salvation. He died to make possible this promised gift of eternal life. Of course he wants you to take it. Bleed Jesus dry if you dare. Give it a crack. You never will of all the mercy and all the grace that you need. The worse the sinner you are, the greater the glory God gets for saving you. You be concerned with one thing tonight. Do not walk out these doors until you are sure that after death you will go to be with Jesus in heaven and you have all of the promises in him by faith. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you and celebrate as this church of redeemed souls. We are thankful for salvation from sin, from freedom, from our sinful habits, from, from, from a rescue of eternal death and hell. We thank you, Lord God, for the gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. We, are, we will never be able to thank you enough. We will never be able to sing songs to your praise enough. We will never be able to do enough to show forth your, the, the, the worth of your majesty and the grandeur of your grace. But Lord, we thank you. We can at least acknowledge that we, that we are in your debt and that we love to be your slaves. We love to be owned by you. We thank you that you've forgiven us. Now, Father God, we do ask now on behalf of those who are with us who do not know Jesus, some of them may be our, our fellow church members, some of us our family members, some of us our friends invited tonight, some people here hearing this for the first time, some for the thousandth time. But Lord God, so powerful is your gospel that you can save them regardless of how fresh the gospel is to them or how much it seems like old news, how, how horribly sinful they've been in every possible way or how sinful they've been in, in their religiosity trying to earn their way to heaven. But Father God, we ask and we pray that you would save souls tonight, that the gospel would be made powerful to your own glory in saving these sinners and giving to them the free gift of your, your magnificent grace, eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank you so much, Lord God, for this word, this gospel, and this promise. And we praise you in the name of our God, King, and Savior, Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. 
We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.